Weekly Signals. Join me, Mike Hasper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about a very fascinating study that was enacted by the Identity Theft Resource Center called the Aftermath 2009. And it's a study that just came out recently in 2010. And we are going to be speaking with two of my very, very, very favorite people. They are wonderful. We've been friends for about 15 years now. And they are the co-founders and co-directors of the Identity Theft Resource Center in San Diego. If you haven't heard them before, they've been on our show every year. We have to have them back. And they've talked about these studies that they've been doing for seven years. And if you haven't heard much about them before, listen in. And then also look at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And you'll see their picture with the new award that they received, which I'll talk about in a minute. And you'll also see much more about them. But let me tell you a little bit first about Linda Goldman Foley. She is the co-founder and director of the Identity Theft Resource Center in San Diego. It's a nationwide nonprofit identity theft program, and they were established back in 1999 in response to the growing need for victim assistance and public empowerment due to this incredible epidemic in identity theft. And today, the ITRC is nationally respected for its wonderful work, its expertise, and they have received numerous awards. They do fantastic work. Linda provides testimony and information for national and state conferences and task forces, and she remains a resource for legislators in California, throughout the nation, and in Congress. And she's appeared on many major television and news shows, uh, several talk shows, and she's widely quoted by major newspapers, radio stations, and magazines. And she has written for me and my book as well. She's reviewed my books, and she is just the very, very best. She has been honored as the 10 Leadership Program uh, in San Diego. She's a recipient of the prestigious Foundation for Improvement of Justice Award, and the National Crime Victim Services Award presented by the U.S. Attorney General for the Department of Justice. And she's received commendations by U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein and former California Governor Gray Davis and so many more people. And they just, I'm so thrilled to be able to state that they just, in April 14th, they were in Washington, D.C., and they were receiving another award that they'll tell you about. But before I get to that, let's talk about Jay. Jay is... Linda's partner in crime, I hate to say partner in crime, in preventing crime and dealing with crime. Jay is the co-founder and director of the Identity Theft Resource Center, and we talked about what what great work that they do. And by the way, I should tell you, it's idtheftcenter.org, um, and the toll-free number is 888-400-5530. That's 888- 400-5530 if you have any challenges that you want to go to the idtheftcenter.org. As the Identity Theft Resource Center's primary criminal justice contact, 
Jay has received support and accolades from members of law enforcement across the country who frequently refer victims to him for assistance. Jay currently sits on numerous law enforcement, governmental, and legislative task forces, and he's testified also in the legislative hearings in various states and in front of Congress. And he is a popular presenter and trainer when you hear him. The two of them are just like a great dog and pony show, too. They're wonderful. He's also appeared on many major television shows, quoted in major newspapers and radio stations across the country. He has an incredible background of 20 years in project management. Of course, Linda has many, many years in journalism, and she writes these fabulous fact sheets. Anyway, Jay is a recipient of the 2004 Crime Victim Service Award presented by the U.S. Attorney General for the Department of Justice, and he's also received commendations. Both of them together have gotten so many awards, I could go on and on, but thank you for joining us, guys. I'm so thrilled that you're on the phone with us. Hello, Jay. Hi there. How are you doing? <laughs> so, Jay or Linda, just tell us about this wonderful award that you received April 14th in uh, in Washington, D.C. The Congressional Victims' Rights Caucus presented to the Identity Theft Resource Center the Susan McDaniel Public Awareness Award for a group that has used its voice to bring a particular issue to the forefront. And that's exactly what we've tried to do, is try to bring awareness to identity theft all across the spectrum. Ten years ago, it really wasn't even acknowledged as a crime. Right. Now everybody knows what's going on. I know, and you both have done such great work. And we're going to be talking today about this new study, which I think is fantastic, you know, it's uh, it's called the Aftermath 2009. You've been doing this for seven years, haven't you? Linda, why don't you tell us um, about this new study and what were the most prevalent forms of identity theft? Well, if you remember long ago, uh, Privacy Rights Clearinghouse and Consumer Actions uh, did one called Nowhere to Turn. Right. And we thought that that should be followed up on. So we've done so each year since. And it's revealed some unusual patterns and some things that, you know, it validates a lot of what we already know. The most prevalent forms of identity theft still seems to be financial. Right. It's 74% of all the respondents. But financial is a very broad category now, whereas it used to be a very narrow category. Now it's far broader. Um, the rest of them reflected criminal identity theft, government identity theft, medical identity theft, combination thereof. Those are types of identity theft we've never even spoken of years ago. Right, right. And now we're seeing a lot of cyber identity theft. So uh, it's it's an ever-evolving type of thing, right? Absolutely. So let's talk about these complexities. You know, wh- why have we seen a change in criminal tactics with regard to this financial identity theft? And uh, why is there such an increase? I noticed in your study, we, you said that uh, check fraud was on the increase. So so why don't you tell us about the, the ever-changing and evolving complexities, Linda? Actually, Jay is going to tell you about that. Okay, then Jay can tell me about that. I know you... <laughs> I said we got a dog and pony show here. Okay, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> what we're seeing here is we're seeing a response to to business. The credit card industry has stepped up to the plate They've employed more robust software for analyzing transactions. They are quicker to shut down your credit card if they think something's out of the norm. They're quicker to check with you, the consumer, and say, are you really making this kind of a transaction? Did you really go and buy gas in Boston last night? And by doing that, what they've done is they've cut back on the avenues that the thieves were using and exploiting so much a couple of years ago. So now the thieves are moving into another more profitable area. They're looking for the debit cards, and they are looking for the checks. They're going back to the old age-old process of, I'm going to write bad checks and pass them all over the place. But we're actually seeing in this past year, they're actually operating more as rings. I recently did, did some work with law enforcement. Miami, Florida, they have a ring operating out of 
They are stealing the identity and information of locals in Miami, Florida, and they're going to cities across the United States. In a two- or three-day period, they will pass 20 and 30 checks mm. in that city under that identity. They'll grab an, another identity and run through and do them, and then they move on to the next city in line. You know, I think because a lot of these banks are cutting back on easy credit, you know, they're not issuing credit like candy to anybody anymore. You know, they're they're even taking away a lot. Some of my clients, they're finding that their credit limits are being reduced, even though they had, you know, they were paying all the time. But I think they're tightening up on credit, so these fraudsters know this. So, of course, they're going to check fraud or they're going to debit card because they can get the money real quick, like what you're talking about, Jay. Exactly. The... Advantages, most people think that debit card, credit card, they're one and the same. They're protected. They're not. They are two separate, distinct items. And, in fact, the problem with a debit card is it can be processed two different ways. You hit the debit button, it's going to communicate with your bank, it's going to withdraw the money from your account right then, right there, right now. Immediately, yeah. If I hit the check or I hit the credit button instead... It just processes that transaction to a point and holds it until the end of the day and processes it with all the other credit card transactions. And I can go through and I can make 30 credit transactions against a debit card. Yes. If the money runs out after the second, now I've got 28 overdraft charges to deal with. Yes. I've got 28 amounts of whatever it was that I purchased that the bank is going to want me to make good. And they're going to be very hostile with me about doing it. It is it is such a shame that people don't realize the difference between a debit card and a credit card. And this is something that we talk about all the time, but people, I think that the Banks are really always trying to push debit cards on people, and debit cards are so dangerous they can be used without a pin online, on the internet, by phone, by fax, all those places. And the laws are different. So, you know, if you use your credit card, you're not going to be held responsible for more than $50, and most of the companies just weigh that. And money isn't siphoned out of anything. You actually have to affirmatively pay your credit card bill after you look at it. So you can you know, report the fraud. But with debit card, it comes out of your check. It's it's actually an electronic check, isn't it, Jay? Exactly. It's just like an electronic check. And the downside to it, or as I like to phrase it, which is easier to do, discuss with your credit card company about a fraudulent charge that's on your statement. Before you pay it. Or argue with your bank to get the money back in your account to cover your mortgage. Exactly. And and what about if you have all sorts of checks or your student loans or whatever, you're trying to write checks and you don't realize it, but all the money's been siphoned out of your account. So, you know, I don't know if you're like me, but I would never, ever, ever have a debit card. I only use an ATM, regular ATM card if I need to put money in the bank and it's after hours or take money out after hours or anywhere that I travel. I just use my ATM and I can never use it without a pin. Well, the problem is also if you don't report it fast enough, right? the amount of money you're held responsible for keeps going higher and higher and higher. It's $50 for 48 hours, but after that it jumps up to $500. And then after that, forget it, it's the whole amount. And meanwhile, you get all these overdraft charges. I know I just work with a woman, Linda, that I just helped her, and I won't tell you what bank it is, but she did report it. In fact, she reported it as she saw the the charges were pending because she does online banking. And there was $24,000 taken out of her account. And what ended up happening is it was six months, and she still couldn't get her money back, so she talked to me, and I helped her. But a lot of these banks are going to do everything that they can not to give you that money back because they're going to lose it. Absolutely. Mari, that's that's just an example of the difference here. Mm -hmm. Under credit cards, we're talking about federal law. Yes. The rules governing debit cards are by the banks, not by the federal government. Right. The only time that um, a debit card is covered by federal law is if you use your PIN or the imposter uses your PIN. But otherwise, you're right. It's it's covered by the bank. It's state laws, and you just have to beg for that money back. And there is ju- it's just 
a real hassle. If you can get a credit card or get a few credit cards, you're so much safer using credit cards. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? You guys uh, learned in your study how check fraud is on the increase. Let's talk about how that happens. Linda, can you talk about some of the victims and what they're experiencing? And we can share some uh, real insight for our listeners about why checks are so dangerous. Well, with check fraud, you have to realize the merchant is blind. This isn't like the credit card system where it goes through a system now automatically comes back and says, this is a good card, bad card, there's money in this account, or they've reached their limit. Right. So the merchants are accepting these checks. The problem is, as Jay said, criminals have become more sophisticated. Anyone can get check stock now. Right. With a regular printer. Right. So they put your name and address at the top, a bank account number that's not yours at the bottom. When the merchant gets that check bounced back to them, they're going to call you because your name's at the top. Right. You knew nothing about it. You didn't even bank in that bank. Or maybe they used your bank number and somebody else's name at the top. Right. And that's okay. what I see a lot of them. I, I had one client who, um, he showed me the checks. He They were his routing number, his bank number, but he had one bank and the uh, and but it was the printing on it was a different bank, and then they had on it Mickey Mouse Disneyland USA, and the bank still processes, so people don't realize it. The bank doesn't even look at those checks. No, and I've had victims say, "Don't they check the signatures?" And I said, "No, Mm-mm. this is all automated." Exactly, exactly. So what happens is it's almost like what Jay was talking about with the debit card. The money is siphoned out. And it's, you know, with this Check 21, it's instant, right? It's totally instant. By the time you find out that there's been check fraud, the money's gone and you have to go and, and beg for it back. And so even ongoing. Ongoing. You can keep writing checks and synthesizing and using bits and pieces of different people's information. Right. And making up routing numbers and such. As long as your telephone number is on there, they're going to be calling you. Right. You know, the collection agencies will find you somehow. Um, if any part of your information is on there. And they can be doing these for years. Exactly. I just hate those types of cases because this is something where a victim is going to have to write a letter over and over and over again. And I think we're going to talk a little later about the time it takes to clear an account. And check fraud is one of those that takes a long time. Right. So let's get back to the identity theft aftermath 2009, because I thought it was a fascinating study, and I I was so fortunate that you let me see it even ahead of time. That was great. Now, so Linda, how did most victims even discover that their identity had been stolen in your study? Well, we're going to do a switcheroo on you again. Oh, you're going to switch me again? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll just say the question, and whoever wants to answer, go ahead. There we go. (laughs) I think you did that on purpose, just to make this crazy. <laughs> uh, that would be about normal for her. I know. It's lucky I know you guys and love you so. <laughs> okay, Jay, so tell me. She likes she likes keeping me off of uh, off balance? Off base whenever possible. <laughs> and now she's throwing me off base. Okay. <laughs> okay, so how did, in your study, how did most victims discover that their identity had been stolen? I do believe that's your question, Linda. Linda, that was your question. It is my question. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you want me to answer it? (laughs) I was looking up at another question. Don't look at the questions. Just listen. Um, We asked a different way for the last couple of years. And what we asked was, did they find out in a proactive way, which would be self-proactive? In other words, did they look at their credit reports? Did they monitor their billing statements? Is that how they found out about this? Did they find out by a business proactive way, which is businesses calling and asking, you know, we see an unusual charge on your account, or um, we're checking to see if you have applied for this credit card, mm-hmm. or in an adverse way, which is a collection agency calls, you're getting these letters from angry merchants who've gotten checks that aren't yours and such. And unfortunately, adverse is still the number one way that they are finding out. Now, we are seeing some growth in self-proactive measures. However, 
we need to see a larger growth in the business proactive measures. Right. Because they're really the ones that are going to see things first. You know, yeah, we can tell people to look at their credit report and, and monitor that if they wish. We can tell people to, which I do, and I know you guys do too, do online banking. Make sure you check your online banking a couple times a week so you catch something really, really quick. But a lot of things are are just not even um, ascertainable. You know, for well, example, medical identity theft. You know yeah, got a criminal record as you. Right. You're going to get arrested. You get stopped for speeding and suddenly you're arrested for, for something else, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And little kids, how are they going to know? Right? It's, it's well, going to be... Well, you're hitting part of my, my heart bone there. <laughs> I know that. I know that's been something Child close to your heart. theft is still on the rise. Um, I just was reading a recent study that came out of uh, the... Salt Lake City Youth um, Police Department uh-huh. stated that illegal alien um, identity theft was understated in terms of the use of the social security numbers to get jobs. Right. Um, so, you know, that's part of it. Um, we're seeing, and in fact, with child identity theft, the unusual trend is we're hearing more about child identity theft because of a denial of benefits mm-hmm. than we are because... Someone is unable to, they've turned 18, 19, and found out their parents did it. So you're talking about a denial of benefits for health care, right? Something Correct. like that, yes. So we have an unknown perpetrator. Right. And yeah, I, swear, I read that in your study that before it was often like a family member, and now we're, you're seeing that it's really strangers who are stealing the baby's identity. Yes. Yes. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that, Things have changed as far as the balance goes. It just means we're finding out about it sooner because I think the recession is playing a part in this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the the percentages may be the same as far as parental versus unknown perpetrator. It's just we're finding out about it in a different way. Right. And I think we're also seeing, and I could see this even from your study, is that we're also seeing that these identity thieves are using it for more than just financial, you know, or the, the old types of financial. They're using it now for medical identity theft and go- more with the governmental benefits. We're seeing that, I think, as well. Absolutely. Jay, did you want to talk about that in criminal yeah. identity theft? Yes. Talk about the criminal identity theft, what you're seeing. Well, what we have seen is we have seen an, a slight increase in the criminal identity theft arena. We're seeing more of the convoluted cases mm-hmm. where an individual has multiple problems, ranging from misdemeanor to felony-level crimes. Unfortunately, in the criminal identity theft arena, we're not seeing anything clearly that leads us to believe that there's going to be an end anywhere near in sight. Mm-hmm. It's... Well, you know, it's so strange because the 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 NCIC, you know, the FBI uses the fingerprints, right? So so obviously that is a is a great way to distinguish between me as Mari the the innocent and Mari the criminal. But what we're seeing in the courts when they're convicting, they're using the social and so you've got these criminal background checks that would maybe have Jay Foley in there as a criminal with Jay Foley, the innocent guy. His fingerprints don't match, but the court records say Jay Foley with Jay Foley's social security number, and that's that's what we're seeing. So I think that's a problem is that the distinguish, it's, it's two different ways of distinguishing from the criminal, right? Exactly. One of the things that we saw this year for the first time, a we actually were able to track it back to the source. A person was arrested for a crime. Law enforcement brought up in front of this person a list of names on the computer and allowed her to pick the one that identified her. Yeah. It wasn't, but that's the one she picked. <laughs> And because of that, a mother in Florida had her children taken away for a couple of days. Oh, my goodness. Something about uh, Florida not wanting 
prostitutes to have children. I haven't quite figured that one out yet. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. So there has to be some new ways of dealing with that, that the, you know, because anyone who gets arrested says, it's not me. You got me mixed up with somebody else. So the, the cops don't know what to believe. That's very true. That's why a couple of things that we're seeing outside of the survey that are, are showing potential. There's a new system that's recently been tested in Florida called the David system, where in a squad car, the officer actually gets to not only see the information about your driver's license, he gets to see the photo ID itself. We're hoping that that system will actually progress all the way across the United States and that the federal government will be able to pull together all 50-plus DMVs and get those photos so that they interchange. You present a California driver's license in Arizona, that officer gets to see your California driver's license plus DMV photo. So the making up my own driver's license routine will sort of die by the wayside. Right, so that would be good, and they just have to have enough laptops or computers with that in in, uh, the squad cars so that they can do that. So it gets a little bit expensive. Yeah. Budget and training, you know, we don't like to pay more taxes, but I'm afraid with identity theft is going to come down to we are going to have to bite the bullet and say, we need this equipment because this is a growing crime. 11 million victims in the last year. That's yes. higher than ever reported before. You know, and that that's what's so, I think, frustrating because, you know, Linda, you and I and Jay have been working on this for, what, 15 years? 15 oh, years wow. we've been working. We've been trying to, you know, help this thing get better. But what happens is, is that it hasn't gotten better. And I don't think it's because the criminals are really that much better. I think it's because we don't have... You know, the the companies are not really being held accountable. We, we're having a lot of problems with a lot of these cases. You don't really have any private right of action against the, the companies or the agencies that have just really allowed the fraud to take place. That's, in a lot of ways, that's true. There are companies out there that really should be held accountable for what they've done and what they're doing. Additionally, there's also companies out there that are turning around and they're presenting myth myth and half-truths to the public, which causes confusion. Yes. No, I keep track of our data breach list here at the ITRC, and I go through and I'm reading different um, arrest warrants by the USAG's office, and you see that a customer service rep or a teller at a bank Still, 20 people's identities or 10 people's identities and such. And those are small little ones, but when you start adding it all together, right. there's so much identity theft that is going on that's outside the realm of the control of the average consumer. And that's why I hope victims don't beat themselves up about it. There are things that we need to be doing, and we've been talking about some of that. But a lot of it comes down to... Am I going to give my information to these people? How are they going to treat it? I can't sit there and watch every computer monitor that's that's out there. Right, or anything even printed off. Or when we think about the Veterans Administration, these poor veterans that have served, and look at what has happened to them. Or you go in the hospital and you're so sick and then you find out all of your information was stolen and then there are people stealing your identities, you know? I know you've been keeping track, a chronology of of these data breaches for years, as has the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. And we're, you know, even though these big companies that have large data breaches have to report it publicly, there's a lot of little companies that don't even have to report it. So we don't know how many data breaches there really are. I think we only know about the tip of the iceberg, to be honest with you. Yes. Because unless it hits the public and the media gets hold of it. Right. Or if there's mandatory reporting like we have with Health and Human Services, which would be 500 or more people. Right. We're not going to hear about it. There's only three or four attorney generals that publish notification letters that they receive. Um, In New York, they just finally released almost 200 letters that they've received over the last two years. Wow. 
and a lot of them we had never heard about, but the information is so sketchy, I can't even put it on our breach list. Right. And sometimes they'll say, we had a breach, but they unknown amount of people who have had their records stolen. <laughs> so that doesn't even help. Unknown amount of people. They don't tell no. what happened. Right. Um, they don't tell what was taken, social security numbers, bank account numbers, credit card numbers. So I don't have enough information to print it. Right. And a lot of the times the victims don't even have that information. The people who who were the subject of the breach, they get a very sketchy letter as well. Absolutely. That's, that's one of the truly obscene things about the, the breach process. Too many companies will collect all this data. They lose control of parts of it or all of it. Then they're not willing to inform the people whose information has been exposed. Okay, what information has been exposed? What should you do to reduce or address this particular issue? And all too frequently, when they do give them instructions or guidance, it's the incorrect guidance for the particular circumstances. In fact, on our survey, we did ask that question. 63% of the respondents did not know who their imposter might be. Right. Of the remaining 30, 20, 30-odd percent, mm-hmm. 24% identified the thief as a relative, friend, roommate, an ex-spouse, or significant other. Right, somebody who had access to that information. Absolutely. 10% said that they know their case related to an employee of a business that had their information. Exactly. And, you know, in Orange County, California, the prosecutors told me that 60 to 70 percent of all the cases that they prosecute in Orange County, California, the uh, the identity theft occurred within some uh, building. I mean, not building, within some company, okay, either in the workplace or within the company. That's what, well, I guess that's the ones that make sense because that's the ones they'd find out about. But it's, it's pretty amazing that... These victims really should know that, like you were saying before, Linda, that it, you know, most of the time it is not their fault. It is happening beyond their control. Well, and that's why when we're hearing proactive ways, law enforcement was one of those proactive ways. They were getting phone calls that their information had been discovered as part of another case that they had been investigating that they might be a victim of identity theft, and then they gave them the information. That's Those great. Those calls came from the IRS, from the postal inspectors. Mm-hmm. It could have come from ICE. Um, it's amazing all of the different agencies that are now calling people that are finding cases that maybe were drug cases, trafficking cases. Um, they might have been smuggling cases, um, but yet it involved identity theft, even just mail theft. And, you know, it's such a really easy crime. And, you you know, you don't have to use a gun. You just make a lot of money. Of course it's going to grow. Yeah. We are speaking with Linda and Jay Foley. They are both co-founders and co-directors of the Identity Theft Resource Center, which is a wonderful, fabulous nationwide nonprofit identity theft program based in beautiful San Diego, California. They have a toll-free number if you're a victim or you're worried about becoming a victim. You can call 888-400-5530. You can also go to their extensive website, and that is idtheftcenter.org, and they have everything that you can imagine that's really, really helpful for you, every kind of fact sheet, all sorts of information that's available to you free of charge. They do great work. So let's get back to this study. They they just this year did a new study after this is the seventh year that they've been doing this of the aftermath. This is aftermath 2009 that was published in 2010. So Linda, how much time generally elapsed between the first incident of theft and discovery by the victims? What happened in your study? What did you find out? You know, it's disturbing they're finding out about it faster, but it doesn't mean that they're able to take care of it in less time. Mm-hmm. It's still, you know, we're looking at that first six months is that discovery window usually. Right. For the majority of them. Some of them, unfortunately, it's two to five years later. Yes. And it I had a lady. A real gap 
Yeah, and, and it really depends on what kind of identity theft it is, too, as well. Like, I know I had a lady who found out 15 years afterwards that it was, uh, she was the victim of uh, IRS fraud. Somebody, yeah. yeah. So it depends. You know, some things, like if you look at your statement and you see a lot of fraud on your credit card statement, that's going to be easy to take care of and you're going to find it within 30 days. But medical identity theft, you may not find that for years, right? You know, I had a victim who contacted us, and it was very interesting because she went to a dentist, a new dentist. It was in her area that she wanted to try, and they said, well, we can't help you until you finish paying off the charges from before. Uh, uh. And she said, what charges? And she was able to figure out the information they were willing to give her, and of course, that's very difficult because there's privacy issues involved. Right, right. That it was her mother who had been doing this. Now, this woman was in her late 20s, but it's still not stopping her mother from using her identity. And, of course, when we're looking at that medical part, then we have a complication because now you've got two different sets of records, so you have mixed files as well as the financial issues. Exactly. And it could be very dangerous as well. It could be. I don't go to the point that I say someone's going to die because of a blood transfusion. That's always, you know, typically cross-matched at the time. But it may confuse the diagnosis if the perpetrator had their appendix removed. They may not think about your appendix if you come in with that type of complaint. Right. And now with these... Uh, electronic medical records that are going to really proliferate everywhere. And they should, you know, I mean, on one hand, there's benefits of it if there was a big earthquake or we have a tsunami or we have hurricanes and things are destroyed. It's very nice that you've got it electronically in the cloud. But what if they pull up Linda Foley or Jay Foley and it's, and it's you know, somebody was using your social and it's yeah. really not you? You know, the one thing that does give me comfort with electronic records um, we do go to Kaiser. Yes. And by the time I get back to the office, there's already an email there telling me about my visit to that day. So it's sort of like getting a benefit statement yes. electronically. And if, right. So and you can I go into your file. This is my information. I'm going to know about it right away. Linda, you can go into that anytime you want. Yes. Oh, okay. So that's good. You know, it's almost like same thing about online banking. People say, well, Mara, you're, you know, you worry about privacy. How is it you do online banking? Well, I like the fact that I can go in and use my, you know, username and my, you know, 12 number letter character password. And I get into look at least twice or three times a week and look at my online banking and at least I can monitor that. And so that's what you can do with Kaiser with your medical records. If anything looks strange, you'll know it because you're looking at it. That's correct. Yes. So that's the advantage of it. But if you have these electronic records and you don't have access to it, that could be the problem. That could be a that's big problem. Correct. That's correct. You know, I was looking at uh, the national survey on medical identity theft, you know, that Larry Poneman did. And interestingly enough, they had... 1.42 million victims of medical identity theft. And the out-of-pocket cost for them was $20,160. That was the average. So when, when we talk about out-of-pocket costs, what, what kinds of things did you find for out-of-pocket costs? Jay? What we saw recently in the, in the study was for the accounts that currently existed, mm-hmm. the out-of-pocket costs were around $527. Right. However, if it was a new account... We're talking about number, financial, right? Fra- financial huh? accounts. We're talking about new credit cards, credit lines, loans. Is that what we're talking about? Yes. Mm-hmm. Those numbers jumped up over $700. Yeah. Wow. Tremendous amount. Tremendous amount. So what, what was the average number of hours then when, to, to repair the damage when there was an existing account? When it was an existing account, it was around 68 hours to deal with it. Mm-hmm. For new accounts or other types, it was 141 hours. Yeah. And it could be more, right, if it was medical identity theft. I think one of the things that I found in your study that I thought was really very important was some people 
spent lots and lots of hours and then just gave up. Yes. Unfortunately, they do. Or they take a different course, and that's far worse. Yeah. You know, nearly one-third of them were unable to remove any negative items from their report. And if people are interested in this report, that would have been Table 16. Um, Some of the factors complicating that were there were areas beyond their control. They were sending out things, and credit accounts kept being reposted on credit reports, fraud alerts being ignored. The inability to prove innocence even with a police report or even to get a police report in some cases. Um, Just Friday, Jay and I had to do a dual call. Um, Well, I talked to the victim on the phone. He was talking with the police department to get them to go out there and take a report for her. Mm, That's pretty amazing. You would think that the police at this stage of the game at least would take a report, even if it's an informational report, just to give them a report knowing that they need it. But I think the fact that a third of them, that was, so, so really and truly when you say how many hours they spent, just imagine if they continued to spend that, the, that third, how many more hours would they have spent to really clear it? Do you know what I'm well, saying? and that's the point. This study is a snapshot in time. Right. We don't know from that point forward how many more hours it takes. And you have to remember there's one other thing that really affects this study. We have intervened. Yes. These are people we are working with. Right, so it's going to be better and for them the anyway. <laughs> that they give up even this, despite the fact that we're working with them, or they say, I don't know how to clear my report, or that they are having a problem clearing their reports, and we're working with them. Now, at one point or another, some of these people, and Shay has used a, a metaphor before, you know, you keep hitting someone down and eventually they stop getting up. Yes. And these victims just stall out. They just, they can't take the beatings anymore. They're tired of being considered guilty until they prove their innocence. Right. Um, in fact, that's why a lot of them, we sent out over 2,000 invitations to this study. We did not get 2,000 people back. In fact, we get people who call us and say, we're so sorry. We're exhausted. I just can't relive this again. Right. We're just exhausted. We've we've spent enough time on it. Yeah. Right. Right. I want to move on. But I think that's something that I'm seeing more of. And and you guys tell me if you think this is the issue as well of why that's happening, that they finally, you know, they just give up. I'm seeing at least victims who call me and they're really by the time they call me, they're if they haven't used my my stuff or your stuff, I, of course I refer them to you or my books. By the time they're that bad that they, they beg me that they want to hire me or they, they de- desperately need my help, they've really been like those people that just are ready to give up, right? They're just ready to give up. Well, I think these companies are kind of counting on that. A number of them are. We're seeing, an, what we're seeing more and more this year than, than we did in the past was the number of companies that are taking hard lines about things that are completely nonsensical. Yes. A victim who goes to the police, gets a copy of the police report, comes back, sends all the appropriate documentation to the company, and some junior-level person in the company's fraud department says, "Uh, you know the person who did this, so you're responsible. Right. Or we think the handwriting is the same, but they're not handwriting experts or... Well, if they had your PIN number, you must have given it to them without realizing that today's skimmers can pick up that PIN number also. Exactly, exactly. And I think also these fraud departments are laying off people because it's not a profit center. And so they are also, I think, and I've heard this from insiders who left, who told me that they actually get rewarded for collecting money that was fraudulent. You know, they get rewarded. And some people just say, you know what, I'm just going to pay the thing. I don't care. I'm just so sick of it. I just want to get that done. Yes. I that's re- unfortunate. Yes. I recently went through uh, an issue with a victim and a bank. In the the bank, multiple members of the bank staff told the victim, it's quite clear that that's not your signature, that this is a counterfeit check. It is not you doing it. Right. The fraud unit of the bank turned around and said, well, you know the person who did this, therefore you're responsible. (sighs) And under the laws of that state, 
There is a specific law about writing, signing somebody else's name to a check. There's a specific law about cashing a check that is counterfeit. They're going to ignore all these other laws and say, no, we want you to pay for it. And Some of these companies are exposing themselves to a liability issue that they're not prepared for. And if they don't wake up to it very shortly now, they're going to start seeing that liability come back in the, in the form of lawsuits. You know, the other thing is I'm seeing a younger group of thieves. I'm mm. seeing them 14, 15 years old. I'm reading about them, and, I'm, and they're computer thieves, no less. Yeah, they're, they're very savvy. From unsecured servers, they are doing the mailbox routine um, with people who still don't have unlocked mailboxes. Yes, um, and they're being arrested at such a young age. And I'm going, I'm reading, and it's like this is a U.S. attorney, and they're going in 2008. This person did this and this, and I'm looking. Wait a minute, they're 21 now. That meant that they were 18 when this occurred. So. Well, you know, you were just talking, Jay, about how when banks say, well, you know this person, you know, maybe it was an ex-spouse or maybe it was a cousin or unfortunately maybe a stepdad or a stepmom. So what did you find, at least in this in this recent study, what, what are most victims' relationship to their imposters? Again, you know, a lot of them don't know who they, their imposter is. Right. I think you said um, 66% or something didn't know. Yeah. 63, 64%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the recession, desperate times call for desperate measures, or our morality has changed, but family members using other family members' identities, I call them all in the family sometimes. Right. Because when you ask and you say, you know, did that person do other things and such, or you even ask the question, you know, do they, did they have some sort of history of things? They had a history of needing money. Thirty-seven percent of them had a history of needing money due to narcotics, alcohol, shopping, or gambling. Fifty-one oh, percent had committed other types of crimes. Right. Thirty-eight percent right. um, said they were a bad financial manager. Twelve percent did this to other family members. Um, organized gangs again. Some think it's a game, or they just do it because they want to. And and you're right when you both were talking about how there's a perception by these banks or whomever that there is some conspiracy because they're a family member. Yeah. And that's a real problem. I know we talk about, you know, in my new book, I even talk about what your choices are. And Linda, you and I have written things on this together about like, what are your choices? Your choices are to confront the family member and ask them to sign an affidavit, go to the police, you know, say that they will, they're willing to take over the account and pay it. It was them. And unfortunately, some of those people don't have the money. So the bank doesn't really want that. Right. <laughs> but, um, but somehow, you know, you got to either get a police report or have something like that. Otherwise, you're going to be one of those 30% of the people who can't get it resolved. Now, on the positive side, because this has sort of been a yin-yang type of report this year. Mm-hmm. It's been very interesting. We are finding more that are reporting this to the police than ever before. They're filing police reports. It's not that they want to settle it without the police. The family is supporting them. Mm-hmm. That's None good. of them said the family will pay the debt owed by the imposter. The families are behind them. And that attitude That's has a, been so helpful. 41% yes. encouraged them to report it to the police. And yeah, otherwise you're enabling this kind of fraud and this kind of crime. Absolutely. So that support has really made a total difference on the impact it's having on these victims. That's good news. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host of Privacy Piracy, and I'm talking to two of my wonderful friends, colleagues. They are fabulous experts. We're speaking with Linda Foley and Jay Foley, who are co-founders and co-directors of the fabulous, wonderful nonprofit Identity Theft Resource Center down in San Diego. And I'm going to give you that toll-free number also if you're listening and you have any problems with identity theft. The number is 888-400-5530. And you can go to their very comprehensive website at 
theftcenter.org and you can sign up for their newsletter, which I get. It's an excellent newsletter. And you can look at all the fact sheets and the, the really wonderful work that they're doing and the help that they give. You know, I wanted to ask you, Linda and Jay, how many, I know you're in San Diego, but how many satellite offices do you have now around the country? Do you have quite a few? Well, we've started a program called Nitro, which has enabled us to work with different other agencies and have them use some of our materials, training, and such. Um, so we're very excited about that. Um, the majority of it still comes here to the home office. Right. But that's a program slowly expanding. We're hoping for funding for that program um, so that those offices have funding to support their people as well. All right. Jay, you know, I had a question. You've long said that identity theft is a dual crime. Why don't you explain what you mean by that to my audience? It's a dual crime in that there are two victims first victim is going to be the individual whose identity has been used and compromised. The second victim is going to be the business that's out goods and services. The identity thief is not going to pay for whatever it is that he's getting. He's going to leave that business floundering. The business is going to try to collect their money. They're going to spend time, and that time is all the cost that they're going to have to absorb tracking down the wrong person. Right. Lots of victims, huh? Unfortunately, that's true. <laughs> and I remember, and Linda and I were both victims, if you're listening and you didn't know this, but Linda and I knew uh. each other many, many years ago, but we both experienced it. So from that, we decided to make some changes. But, I, you know, I, I'm wondering, um, and I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, great. What did you just say, Jay? <laughs> you were just saying... What was that? <laughs> I totally lost my train of thought, but um, you know, but it doesn't matter because I'll ask another question and then it'll come to me. Linda, you and I have both experienced the emotional impact of identity theft. Yeah. What, what's going on now? What did you learn from your study about the the, the newest impact on identity theft? <laughs> well, you know, when it comes down to analyzing the study, everybody steers clearer from me because <laughs> they know they're going. Linda's going into her depression time. <laughs> But I have to tell you, I took a look at it, and I had a psychologist look at it because I didn't know what to, to make of what I was seeing. And he helped to explain it to us. And it was Dr. Charles Nelson, who's a very talented criminal um, victim specialist. And he says, you're seeing more people in denial or disbelief or rage because we have this feeling of it's not going to happen to us. It happens to other people. Right. Right. Then they go through the stages of grief, denial, disbelief, um, then there's some depression, then there's anger. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we're seeing more long-term shame. Mm. We are seeing more long-term feeling of isolation. And again, these are people who have been working with us. Mm. Um, the loss of innocence has actually decreased. The inability to trust people, which is one of my big ones, has decreased. So it's gotten better. Right. That's good. So what he came to the conclusion was, is that people are going through this feeling of, I've heard about identity theft, but it happens to other people, not me. Right. And then when it happens to them, they're overwhelmed. And they go through this roller coaster of emotions. And they start working with us, and they start getting back that sense of power. Hmm. But it's, it's been an interesting look at human behavior, um, which actually, when we looked at the study, and I said, I don't know what to title this study. Are we encouraged this time, or is it victims are still struggling it it showed both. I so think that like was... It had a yin-yang effect for me. Right. You know, when you had said that about 30% still had problems that they couldn't resolve, that's got to be so frustrating. And the anger of trying to prove who you are and prove your innocence. And, you know, many of these companies just have people who are told to just say, I understand, but we can't help you. I understand, but we... 
are not going to, you know, remove these from your credit report. <laughs> you know, and it's it it's very it's crazy making for people. It's feeling uh, we ask questions, do you have a sense of being outcast? Twelve percent for long term. We have short term and long term. Yes. In the long term in two thousand eight it was five percent. It went up to twelve percent sense of being outcast. Mm. Sense of being undeserving of help went up to fourteen percent from six percent. Feeling captive went up to 18% from 14%. Um, feeling suicidal, long-term went up to 10% from 2% in the year before. Frustration, annoyance, these are all of increased exhaustion, sick of, of fighting the system and of being suspect, and then a feeling that they've lost everything. I'm and just wondering if it's those... 11% yeah. and long-term was 17%. Wow. So that increased. So, so that, I'm wondering... In the beginning, helpful, and then yeah. they slid downhill. I wonder if that is really that 30% of the people that you talked about that weren't able to finally resolve everything. Yeah. It just sounds, you know, that they would fit into that category because people who would resolve would feel like, oh, whew, I got that over with, you know? Yeah, but sometimes... and. I hate to blame this on a victim, but I know, frankly, in our center, we're working hard with a victim. Right. And then all of a sudden, we don't hear from them for a while. Mm, and don't we'll follow make a up. follow-up phone call three weeks later. How are you doing? Did you get this taken care of? No. Right. Family came in, and I got busy with that, and I got busy with that, and we were taking a vacation, and I couldn't do this, and I just couldn't face that. And, and then you call back three weeks later, and there's another excuse, and you say, look. Right. You either have to get off right. behind right. and get to work, or this is going to get worse. And that means we have to start remotivating them. Exactly. Because they slide into this depression. And depression is very hard to fight without a teammate. Right. Now, you had a couple things improving, so I, you know, we're almost done, so I wanted to have Jay tell us where there was improvement. I know, because we kind of talked about where there isn't improvement, but... How about the areas of improvement? Victims spent less hours repairing the damage. I mean, if they got busy doing it and got it done, they spent a lot less hours. Um, in one case, it went from, from 265 hours down to 141 hours. And, you know, hours is over a period of weeks, months, or years. As you know, you write a letter and then you wait a month and a half for them to write back. So it's not like you can work on it in three days and get it taken care of. There's always something where you're waiting for something to arrive in the mail. Right. The costs went down, which and, is good. Right. And for me, the most important thing is that so many more said that they had support from friends. Well, only 9% said their friends were not supportive. And you and I, Mari, know... How important. I don't think I would have gotten through my case if it hadn't been for the ability to speak to you, someone who's been through it, who said, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And it comes back to that's why we care here at the Identity Theft Resource Center. It's because we know that they need that warm voice on the other end of the phone, not another phone tree. Yes. <laughs> to go through. They need someone to talk to. A real human say, yes, being. I understand. Well, we are out of time, and that's a great way to end because I do want people to know that they can call a wonderful place. They can get a lot of fabulous information, very, very important information, and also get that warmth that you can hear from Jay and Linda. They're, they're wonderful people, and all the people that they've trained are just very, very warm and friendly and helpful and supportive as well. So oh, we've got a great team here. You are terrific, both of you. So they can call your toll-free number at 888-400-5530, and they can visit idtheftcenter.org, and you are both wonderful. Thank you so much for all the great work that you do. You guys walk on water, and I love you both. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Mary. We'll talk you to you soon. Okay, take care. We will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. See our upcoming guests. 
click on those archived interviews, download podcasts, and please write us emails about what you want to know about in the information age, and we'll find you the experts to talk about all the great things that need to happen. And we support you and you can support us. Thank you so much. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.